Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. educational and issues-driven radio show designed to tell another side of the story, to focus on and humanize crime victims, to enlighten and shine the spotlight on organizations and service providers, and to assist those who walk the path with us. This is Donna R. Gore, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you this Saturday and every Saturday with regard to the issues uh, primarily surrounding the aftermath of crime and sometimes other issues that affect people um, in the masses. And I have to say that uh, today's podcast is one of those days where we are touching upon and um, probably barely scratching the surface of a very important issue that that touches us um, and something that is not talked about nearly as much, and that is the very difficult topic of suicide and suicide prevention, suicide intervention. And I'm, I'm very um, proud of uh, a couple of past podcasts we have done on this topic because uh, I think it has helped a lot of people. Uh, today we have, we have another friend um, to our show, an expert, Brett Scudder, who is um, – who is is with the Scudder Intervention Foundation Services, um, and um, he is also a suicide uh, survivor, and I believe that makes him an expert. Uh, but, but before we introduce introduce him, um, I'd just like to say uh, hello to Delilah in Myrtle Beach, and uh, how are you? And uh, what would you like to say um, regarding our our guest today? Hi everyone. I you know this is this is a topic that hits home for many more people than we realize and the the shows that we've done previously have offered a lot of information, general type information and some stories were told and and good advice given. Um this show I think is going to be a little different and listeners will learn a lot about intervention and and what we can do and how much we really miss as far as red flags and so forth. So I'm uh, I'm ready to get on with it. Okay, well so am I. Um Brett Brett Scudder was introduced to me through our good friend Amy Amy Crone uh Santa Gata, who is also a uh, a survivor of suicide um by virtue of her brother and um we we had connected a few weeks ago and he had a few life milestones that that kind of took priority and we were able to get him today he's very much in demand due to his stellar trainings on this topic so brett we want to welcome you to the shattered life family and to our our podcast today and thank you so much for joining us we're very excited to have you as our guest well, thank you, thank you, and thank you so much, um, Sister Donna and and Delilah, for having me and 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 really focusing on this topic today. I'm really honored and humbled to be here with you, and we really are going to have a great show today on this. Thank you. Oh, it, it's our pleasure. And um, as Delilah had said, we had we have taken a, a different perspective on each each of the shows that we have done or each of the blogs that I have written. Previously, but you know this up close and personal. And um, perhaps before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of uh, of statistics or some of the, uh, the the primary focuses we want to concentrate on 
Can you tell us a, a bit about your foundation and also about your background and, and what brings you what brings you to this cause? All right, thank you. So the name of the organization is the Scudder Intervention Services Foundation, and basically I started the organization because of my own personal experiences dealing with suicide attempts, depression, PTSD, and trying to get help from the system and, and, and what we consider to be the mental health and healthcare system. I didn't think that the systems realize what it means for a person to be in crisis, uh, emotional crisis and distress, what that means for someone, the, the sensitivity of it, the, the need for humane compassion and the need for that human interaction. And so while I was going through my own struggles and my own suicide attempts, I realized that, you know, the fact that my life was not taken when I was trying to give it up was the fact that I needed to do something with my life to help to bring a change to what we traditionally know as a healthcare system and a mental health system. And so the organization was founded as a result of that. My work is in working with people who are in crisis and distress, who have lost a loved one, who have lost a loved one to violence or to suicide and just having a hard time dealing with that. People who are just average, everyday citizens who are just finding life to be hard, but they're afraid to go to the traditional system because the traditional system reports and, you know, it diagnoses and it labels people. And, and sometimes the judgment that comes from that is a turnoff and can actually be very traumatizing and stigmatizing for people. And so from my own personal experiences and what I've been through fighting with suicide and depression, I started the organization and really been doing the work that we do from a personal perspective in my studies of human behavior, psychology, sociology, and just really looking at life. I took what I have went through and working with the people that I work with to help to build the organization to be more effective in working with people who are struggling like this. Mm-hmm. What um, and uh, how how long how long have you been doing this work? Um, we're actually I've personally been doing this here in New York for about fifteen, sixteen years. Mm-hmm. Um we we were doing it more on a one on one individual basis, but over the last say eight, nine years it became more public and more open. Um the reason why is because I was actually working because this is really a non profit side of me doing what I do to help people. It was being funded by the work that I was doing on a nine-to-five, so I couldn't commit to it the way that I really wanted to because of just Mm -hmm. doing the nine-to-five to to maintain the way we help people. But then after going through my last, I had a very distressful life experience about eight years ago that I lost everything. I lost my family, lost our house, lost everything we owned, and it really took me into a very deep chronic depression a um, couple of suicide attempts, and, and it really just took me to a very dark, hurtful, and painful place. And at that point, even after attempting to, to take my life, it, it never worked out. And so for me, I just, I just threw myself into it full time, and this is what I do 24-7 every day, working with people who are struggling with depression, people who are struggling with PTSD and between depression and PTSD attempting to take their life or they have lost a loved one and can't cope with it, don't know how to deal with it, or just really having a hard time fighting the demons within so that they can, you know, overcome it and not having to take their life. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Delilah. Well, with Brett, I just wanted to ask, with all of the experience that you've had over the years and dealing with the mental health system, have you come up with sort of a laundry list of recommendations, how how it can be made better and how these resources can be um, better accessed by by people who are suffering from depression or whatever other mental uh, problem that they're going through? Uh, that's a great question, um, Sister Lila. That's a great question. The problem is, is not that there aren't resources. The problem is that we don't have a humane system that's geared towards dealing with a humane condition. Suicide is not a psychiatric issue. It's not something that we can look at from a psychiatric perspective, and that's what we've been doing for too long. We have been looking at suicide as an illness, as a disease, 
as a state of uh, of some kind of dysfunction within a person. The truth is suicide is just an over, over, uh, overwhelming reaction to life challenges or life challenges become overwhelming and a person just feels like there is no hope, there is no help, and they just choose to give up. And from that perspective, the system has to now change to look at people who are depressed and suicidal from a humane perspective. Not about being sympathetic, but being empathetic. Not about just saying we have services that are limited to 9 to 5, but having 24-7s ongoing intervention, prevention, and most importantly, postvention services. Because after a person has attempted suicide or thought of suicide or is contemplating suicide, there aren't many resources that effectively, effectively will help that person through their life process. They have to go for counseling, they'll go for therapy, and the therapy or the counseling wants that person to be able to open up at the time that they're in counseling. And we know that you can't tell a person, well, you have an appointment from 1 to 3 or 1 to 2, and within that one hour you need to unleash all the demons within you and all the hurt and pain that's within you at that particular time with someone that you may not know, you may not trust, you don't feel like you've had a, a, a human connection with that person, so you're not feeling like, okay, you know, I can really open up to this person. And if you even do feel that connection and open up to that person, you're not getting the type of response, you're not getting the type of connection, the feel that would make you even want to open up and share to that person. So the, the and, typical therapeutic model with the one-to-one therapist and and uh and patient or client to be quote unquote therapized isn't isn't the, the the most effective are you are you espousing to perhaps the the group peer to peer therapy model that might be more effective in this case well both are effective you know it's just a matter of who is providing the service who is providing the therapy who is providing the counseling who is running the peer to peer group the problem is, you know, whoever is doing the therapy counseling or the peer-to-peer group, there has to be that humane compassion piece that goes with it, not just it being done as a job or, you know, I'm supposed to be doing this, but a person who is doing this because they understand that a person who is depressed to that level of wanting to kill themselves is a person who is fighting with demons within themselves who are telling them things and saying things to them or surrounded by people or showing a lot of negative energy to them. And so they don't need to come into a system to be judged or have prejudice on them or be just labeled and then given a prescription to be medicated. People need someone that they can connect with on a humane level that can say, you know what, Donna, I understand what you're going through and I feel you. Let's work through this together. I know this is not something that we can put within the regular confines of a nine-to-five, but there mm-hmm. is after-hour services where if at one o'clock in the morning you're feeling like, oh, my God, I'm overwhelmed, I'm stressed, I'm depressed, I need someone to talk with, you're not just reaching out to a hotline that someone is there who will just read through a script or just talk with you just because they're doing that, but you actually have resources with people that you may know locally on the ground in your community that you can say, hey, Delilah, you know, I'm just going through something right now, but you and I are friends, and I can reach out to you because you understand. You may not be a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a mental health professional, but you're a human with a human compassion that can help me to just de-escalate and come out of this crisis mode that I'm in right now that I'm thinking of hurting or killing myself. So are you thinking that a, a suicide survivor such as yourself would be the most effective kind of person or someone someone that um, you really trust or whatnot? And, and with that, I'm playing devil's advocate here, Brett. Um, I don't know that, you know, my, my best friend or my circle of friends would want – would would want to take that on. They they may be very uh, skittish about. Okay, you know, I don't want to say something that m- might push them over the edge, or they would take offense. I mean, uh, I, I don't know uh, whether whether you know the average person, even though they have some good friend that they trust, would want to would want to take that on. Well, and and I'm glad that you said that. I'm very glad that you said that. Part of the problem with that is because we've created such a fear 
right. around suicide that the average person does not even want to get involved in it because of the fear that's associated with it. We think that a person who's suicidal is crazy. We think that mm-hmm. the person is having some mental illness. And if we think of people in that state, anyone, most people would not want to get involved in even having a conversation with someone if they feel that that person is crazy or delusional or just having some kind of illness. So first we have to normalize and we have to destigmatize the fact that suicide is just someone going through overwhelming challenges of life. It's just a, a, emotion, a, a lot of emotions. They're overwhelmed. They really don't know what to do. They're having that incoherent thought and just really saying, you as an average person can be a part of helping someone who is in crisis and distress by simply listening, Mm -hmm. listening to them open up, listening to them talk about what they're going through, not judging them or not saying to them, oh, you know what, it's been five years since you've lost this loved one or since five years since this incident happened, get over it and move on. We have to promote positive messaging and teach people basic steps of how to help someone who is in crisis and distress. Because the truth of the matter is there are many people who are struggling and they choose not to open up and share because the person who they would really want to open up and share with, they're afraid to do that because of the stigma that comes with that. So we as a society... Or they, or they may be afraid that this person will, in fact, bring them down and they don't want to go to any dark places that they might have or, or you know, I can listen to them. I have 15 minutes today, but I really don't have time in my schedule every single day to... Talk to them for a half. You know how fast-paced our lives are? And it is a rare person that would say, okay, I can take a half hour out of every day to, to listen to my friend. I mean, I'm again, I'm being devil's advocate. How realistic is it that you're going to have a friend that can commit to this kind of a peer-to-peer relationship, Brett? But again, sis, it's not just about one person. Uh-huh. If we if we destigmatize suicide and depression across the board in our society, there will be more than one person in each one of our lives that will be more receptive. So I can't call Donna between nine and five because she's working, but Delilah may be available. So I can call Delilah between nine to five if something happens, and I can call Donna between eight p.m. to twelve p.m. or twelve a.m. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? The idea right. is. By destigmatizing exactly by destigmatizing our society around suicide and depression, there will be more people that we will all be able to open up to. And it's not just about saying every day this person is going to come with their depression and so on. It's by saying that at least if someone is able to understand what I'm going through, they will be able to refer and connect me and help me to get the appropriate help that I need rather than saying, you know what, Brett called me and he was telling me a whole bunch of stuff and he sounded like he was depressed and going to kill himself. I don't want to take his calls again. If he ever calls me again, I'm going to let go to voicemail. I'm not going to respond to that. And that's what we're trying to change. We're trying to change the ways in which when a person is in crisis and distress, is in need of help, that the help is available on different levels. But at least having someone to listen and then be able to say, hey, you know what, I think you should see a therapist. I think you should see a counselor. Let's go together. I'll go with you so you don't have to feel like this is something you have to do for yourself or by yourself. Well, don't you think a lot of times, Brett, it's the isolation that person feels, and if they know that there are people out there who are just willing to listen, they it's not like they're going to call you every five minutes or every day or every time they have a problem, but sometimes just the knowing that someone else is out there to to be available. And I think another point, and, and you know, you might want to expand on this too, is if you're in the position to be able to listen to someone who's who's suffering through this, it's not always a good idea to give advice because most people, lay people like us, are not trained in in counseling or or have the ability to give the correct advice. And yes, that's 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 true. That is right, and that's why I said the tier levels. All right, so let's walk through this for, and I'm going to sum up what you just asked in, in this response. 
So in, in the process of destigmatizing suicide and depression, there is a message that goes out to society. And the message is part of what you just said. If someone comes to you and that person is suicidal or a person is, is depressed where they're telling you they want to hurt themselves, you may not be a lay person who can guide them or, or give them the right, how should I say, the right advice on how to deal with it, but you can give them a referral or point them in the right direction. Does that make sense? So mm-hmm. I I may not be trained in de-escalating someone who is in is emotional distress or trained in suicide prevention, but I can identify that you just told me that you want to hurt yourself. While I may not be able to give you advice on how to do that or to, to, to not do that or what to do, I can give you advice as to where to go. I can give you advice as to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. I can give you advice to LifeNet, resources that have trained people who are specializing in this that you can get the help with. So in the messaging of how we destigmatize suicide and depression comes all of these other pieces within the messaging of what do you do if you have a loved one or a coworker who says to you that, I'm going through so much right now, and and life is just tough. I I give up. I can't. I don't want to live anymore. I I don't want to do this anymore. How do you respond to that? And if we're able to just do that basic awareness out to society, believe me, we will have a lot more people who will be able to then take that first response and connect people to the trained resources and the professionals. Or if that person is saying, like we're having a lot of people right now, here's another thing that we have to factor in. We have a lot of people right now who will tell you straight up that I'm I'm in a depressed mode right now, suicide is on my mind, but I don't want to go to the emergency room. And if you call 911 and report me to 911, I'd rather kill myself. Okay? So there is also the isolation side of it, but then there's also the reality of the fear that people know that they're in need of help. They're reaching out for help, but then they're being, they're pushing back on the help that's available and what that help is. Again, it comes back down to how we as a society are destigmatizing the way in which we address emotional wellness and suicide so that people who are affected by it or struggling by it can have the help. And this is about people in general, whether you're a trained professional or just the average person on the street or a family member or, you know, working in an environment. We can all be a part of the solution on some level. And that's the point that we need to get to. I I see what you're saying. I'm wondering if you're getting pushback or resistance or people from the uh, mental mental health and addiction staff or psychiatric uh, physicians saying, well, that's all well and good, but, I mean, are they embracing what you're having to say? Well, we're going to get pushback across the board, Sister Donna. We're going to get pushback across the board. We've been getting pushback across the board because we don't pro- we don't promote drugs and prescription as a way of dealing with suicide. We don't promote the, the traditional ways of providing counseling or therapy for people who are suicidal. So we've been getting a lot of pushback. But the thing is, we've been getting a lot more success in what we do because of how we do what we do. So our work speaks for itself. Our success rate speaks for itself. In in July last month, we had 392 serious suicide cases, and that's the highest we've had for the whole year in one month. We're not talking about sexual abuse, domestic violence, or substance abuse. We're talking about people who were just at the point of just saying, I'm done. I don't I don't want to live anymore. I, I, I don't care anymore. I'm not even trying to get help. I'm just done. And when we look at the model and we, we talk with a lot of these people who are coming to us, many of them have a therapist. Many of them are in counseling. They're in therapy. They're on medication. And we're like, okay, so wait a minute. So if you have and are going through and have all this going on, why are you still in the state that you are? And many of them just simply want a human connection that they they just can't have, they just can't make, and they're not getting. So when we look at traditionally what the system is, we're not downplaying the effects of what traditional mental health services are. What we're saying, we need to change the ways in which we provide services 
to people who are in, at this point or in this state so that the traditional model is not applied across the board for everyone because not everyone is in, at the same level or is in the same need. Mm-hmm. So is it your charge to try to go to, to these different major cities where you do trainings and maybe set up peer-to-peer trainings and groups and and to connect people that maybe they can connect with on a personal level to to supplement what they're doing with traditional medicine or replace it if it works better? Is that what your organization is, is trying to do? We're trying to fill the need of areas across the country who do not have trained professionals to address the topic and the issues. Work. We will come into any community that can. Um, basically, all we ask is for them to provide the coverage of the funds that needs for transportation and accommodation to come in. So we can provide training for groups of people within communities that don't have enough resources to assist, de-escalate, and respond to people who are in emotional crisis for depression and suicide. And by by the work that we do and, and seeing the volumes of what we do, we do understand that this is a dire need because we do get the calls from across the country to our crisis lifeline. We are very active and engaged on social media. On any given day, we have hundreds of people reaching out to us just on Facebook alone through private messaging because they see the promotion of the work that we're doing, and they're just reaching out for help. So we really are trying to... Mm-hmm. take this message across the country to say, look, let us all come together and provide training in communities for people on the ground to be educated, aware, and trained on how to respond and help someone who's emotional crisis on a first aid level. Are you mm-hmm. finding that is there a particular population that you're seeing an increase in attempts or an increase in people looking for resources from you? That is a hard question to answer specifically. Let me tell you why. When the requests are coming in and we are talking with people, we're finding that sometimes the trigger or the stressor for them is is on different things. I think I could answer that question more if we were talking about specifically what are the triggers. For example, um, unemployment. For example, a broken heart. People who are hurting from a relationship broken. And that's across the board for aged from teens all the way up to seniors. Same thing for unemployment all the way up to seniors. We have mm-hmm. people who are homeless. Homelessness is not just about someone living on the street. Homelessness is about someone who is also living in a house or being provided shelter, but the, the shelter is not comforting for them. It's something that's actually very abusive and very uncomfortable. So that's one form of homelessness that most people don't even think about as being homeless, but also plays a lot into what we have. Um, so those are three of the top issues across the board from, you know, young to old that we find are three of the top issues where people are pushed to that limit. People are struggling with the depression and people are just like giving up because, one, if you're homeless, it's hard, especially here in New York City. Finding resources and housing here in New York City is next to impossible. I mean, even when you look at the, the 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 mayor's office and the services that they have for shelters and providing services for shelters, you have people now who will tell you, I would rather sleep on the street than go into a shelter because the life within the shelter is so it's so distressful, it's it's so depressing, it's such a high risk for many yeah. cases and dangerous. Mm-hmm. So you have many right. people who even though we talk about we have 45,000 people in the shelter system here in New York City, I challenge the city and the mayor's office to say, do an assessment of the quality of life that the people are living in the shelters. Because it's one thing for us to be promoting numbers and statistics. Our, our thing is we look at the quality of life. Let's focus on quality of life for people who are in need or are being provided services. There are many organizations providing great services. We need to promote them more. We need more people to know more about them. But most importantly, they need more funding to continue 
doing the great work that they're doing because funding has been taken a lot of funding has been taken out of mental health services. Definitely. So In our state and too. And so there's a but lot. The very nature of shelters is that it is transitional, temporary, and it's not meant to be set up to be, you know, comfortable or any in any way, uh, you know, like your own home. Home, it's just to to keep a quote unquote roof over your head temporarily. I mean, that's that's the nature the nature of the beast. I think so. Um, I don't think anyone would feel comfortable in those in those circumstances. And I understand what you're saying. Um, I I know that we had we had talked about. Uh, when we were planning the show, the fact that there were certain populations that you are seeing a rise in suicidal ideation, even young children. Is that right, Brett? Yes. We've had some four-year-old children who have been actively suicidal and and telling their parents about not wanting to live. And that was um, a wake-up call for us on a lot of levels when we started seeing that. But what's the dynamics of that? I mean, does a four-year-old really have a concept of the difference between life and death and heaven and all of those things? I mean, I don't really understand that. Well, the thing that we have to think about is not the age of the child, but the intellect of the child and the environment that the child lives in. I mean, we have to look at those two key pieces that plays into that. If the child is four years old and is a very smart child and the child is living in an environment where they're exposed to a lot of negativity and a lot of talk about, you know, being stressed out, depressed, I can't take this anymore, I don't want to live anymore, it's hard to put food on the table, it's hard to take care of you as a child. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, 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 the violence is one thing too, but the other thing is what are we speaking into the existence and the consciousness of our children because I've seen it personally. I've been in a home to provide services, and I've heard the parent telling the child, like, you know, you don't have, you have no idea how hard it is to take care of you. You know, you have no idea that since you came into my life, my life has become such a living hell, and, you know, I just don't want to live anymore because of just not being able to take care of you. So now the child hears that, and the child is hearing some of these negative things coming at them, and the child starts feeling like, well, you know, I'm, I need to feel the same way like mommy or daddy is feeling too because maybe I'm the reason for that. Right. So there's a lot of environmental factors that plays out into that. We look at a lot of families who have been affected by violence. We look at a lot of families who have been affected by unemployment. We look at a lot of families who are affected by domestic violence. And who, who, who pays the most in that is it's the children. And it's Definitely. not limited to the age of a child. We need to start realizing that in this day and age, a child being born is being born with the intellect and intelligence of even a two-year-old. So when you look at babies now, I mean, we just had a baby. I'm, I'm a new father, and we just had a baby a month ago. And I'm looking at her, and I'm seeing things that she's doing at just a, a month old, even as a premature baby. And I'm like, wow, my 18-year-old mm-hmm. son was never doing things like what she was doing until he was like eight or nine months old. But now here she is, premature, but also now here, and she's she's so more advanced, advanced in comparison. In what she's doing, yeah. I mean, I'm like, uh-huh. oh my god, as a eight, I have an 18 year old son, so I'm comparing what we had to do or what we saw in him when he was born and how he developed over time, and what he developed at uh, when he was at 8 months old i'm now seeing things in her at 1 month old and i'm like wow so we right. really and it's have just to a realize whole different society exactly uh, you know 15 years ago or 18 years ago and you know you know Brett, this leads me to the point where with with, with so many of society's ills today um we're looking to school systems to solve so many problems. Uh, you know, children don't have don't have food, so we develop breakfast programs, and and uh, children, you know, they need aftercare uh, school after school situations because of latchkey, and you know, children just don't have you know, parents are working or or there's no one to take care of them, so we're looking to them for that. We're looking to them to have school clinics because they need immediate health care. It's not available. They don't have insurance, although I guess Obamacare has addressed some of that. So we're also looking, like I say, to, to schools, 
to provide this kind of crisis intervention. And I think in our former conversations, you had told me that schools are are failing at this it, at whatever level they feel there is a responsibility. Can you talk about some of those issues? Well, let's be honest and let's be real. I mean, you have one social worker or a, a psychologist in a school with four or five hundred kids. So yeah. you want that one person now to manage five kids in a day that who are having emotional disturbance issues or emotional distress or coming through the door with trauma from what may have happened last night. They may have been abused, sexually abused, have been in a domestic violence situation, you know, had their house burned down and they were displaced, and now they're coming into the school environment, and we want them to shut down their emotions at the door to come into the school so that they can pursue their academics, stay focused, and not be disturbed by everything else that's going on. And that's wrong. That's the first stage right there in how messed up this is. Because we need we need schools to be more equipped to help our children with a lot of these emotional issues. And when you look at how the education system is more focused on academic excellence and not really on overall the overall a well-being of a child, yeah. right, mm-hmm. we have serious issues. A lot of our kids today are dealing with real-life situations. But when they come mm-hmm. to school, they're not getting that type of help and support. So now they have an emotional meltdown, an emotional breakdown. They could either be just silent and crying or they could be physically violent and disruptive. But then now they're going to be re-traumatized and re-victimized because they're going to be either suspended or they're going to put in detention or they're going to be labeled as ADHD. <laughs> you know, right, I know. I know. It, it, what about the suicide issue with regard to these, these these children dealing with these issues and you saying that there's suicide ideation here? How how uh, prolific is that and what what is what is the answer? Do we hire more guidance counselors and and social workers? Is that is that the answer? I mean, they're cutting they're cutting school funds left and right. Uh, what, how do we deal with that? Wow. How do we deal with that? Or how do we effectively deal with that? So, I think we've been trying to deal with it, and we've seen the system try to deal with it, but it's I don't personally I don't see it as effective because it's missing a couple of things. So how do we effectively deal with with that? We need to create, which is what I don't know if you're familiar with here in New York, but now here in New York, there was a lawsuit against the DOE last year where um, plaintiffs there were eleven plaintiffs, children from five to seven years old who were having emotional issues in, in schools. They were handcuffed and, and, and taken out of schools in handcuffs, and 911 was called. So that lawsuit has changed a lot of what, in this new school year, is how emotional distress issues are to be handled, which is, is starting to be better, which I'm grateful for. Mm-hmm. So now you have a child who is in, in distress, suicidal or just having a behavioral health problem. Now the chancellor's office is giving guidelines as to how that's handled. Now you can't just suspend the child or put the child in detention. The schools now have to create crisis de-escalation teams, crisis response teams, have people trained in behavioral health for them to be able to address the behavioral issues or bring in an organization from the outside within the school so that within the school the services can be provided which is really mm-hmm. a good model when you think about it because now you're not saying that the teachers need to have this type of expertise, but now you can say that a select group within the school can be trained as a crisis response team and additionally have professional organizations from the outside working with the school to provide the services, which is great. That's a good model. The mm-hmm. problem now- is how do you fit? how mm-hmm. do you fit that type of emotional distress within the curriculum where – if a child has a day where they're going through something emotional and, and during that emotional time they're removed from class, are they given a time to make that up or how do they engage now with being home and having the emotional distress? Is the services being provided at school extending to the home? Because we can't just expect that the child is going through emotional distress 
and it shuts down at the end of the day because school is out and they're going to be okay. Right. It doesn't happen like that, right? No, it right. doesn't. So how do we expand the services to revolve around the life of the child ongoing so that the child can have the type of support needed to be able to effectively cope with whatever they're going through and then still be able to maintain some level of focus so that their academic excellence can still be had. And that's the part that we're, we still have to work on that part because you can't just expect the child to shut down their emotions, focus on schoolwork right. and be okay, and then, you know, come back to the emotions when, they, when they're able to. Right, or have certain teams of teachers be available after school or during a Saturday or something where they might be able to go back and, you know, quote-unquote make up work when they're not feeling as emotional. I mean, but it all comes down to, you know, resources. And are the is, – is this what you're talking about? Um, are these um, things being funded by departments of education? Well, these are, these are the things that needed to be funded because, again, you're going to ask a teacher to provide services after hours. If she's not being here, she's not being paid. Do you, is it really right for us to ask no, a teacher you can't do that, that right. you know, to spend two or three hours after school to help this child who was going through a meltdown during the day and not be paid? There's also one no. of the things that's now in the in, in the chancellor's regs that a teacher has to accompany accompany a child to the emergency room if that child needs to go to the emergency room. Now think about this. If school gets out at three o'clock and that child has emotional distress at two fifty and now mm-hmm. has to go to the emergency room and spend three or four hours in the emergency room, is that teacher being paid for that? Right. So so there are some things and this is what I'm saying, there are things within the system and how the system is set up that we have to reevaluate because funding right. has to be put into this effort on all levels because you're talking about humane services being provided for people by people. And as good as our heart is and as much as we want to do good, we all have lives. You're asking someone to take away time from their own family to deal with an issue which should, shouldn't be their issue in the first place, but if they choose to do that, they should be compensated for that. And right. we don't I, see that happening in a lot of cases. And some people just say, look, I don't, you know, I, I got to go home to my family. I, I got my own kids to deal with, so I got to go home to my family. You know, it's after hours. I can't take no phone calls after 9 o'clock because I got to put my kids to bed. You know, so there right. are, you know, <laughs> this, this, these are the realities a lot of times in what we're dealing with and how we have to reevaluate how the services and what the services are that are being provided. Sounds like there needs to be a whole different educational model for children and their children with special needs no matter what what it is because it, it doesn't fall within, you know, eight o'clock and three o'clock or whatever. It's it's very difficult. But you know what I'd like to uh address as well. There is a little over 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes to our show too. One of the, um, and it's just flying by as usual, uh, one of our, uh, one of the things that that, that um, I think a lot of people don't realize that, that we had talked about is that with the topic of suicide intervention in general, um, you know, there there is no aftercare. Like when somebody has an orthopedic issue or a surgical issue, like I just had a couple weeks ago with eye surgery. You you can go and you can have home care services within your home as a follow-up. But what is there after that initial intensive acute period where someone goes to the ER or they might be given a referral for ex-therapist and you try to find a therapist and set up an initial appointment and your insurance maybe only pays as is similar to homicide survivors for X number of sessions, and then you're done. But what if this person requires continued aftercare and following and whatnot? What what do you suggest with regard to to, to this situation, Brett? Postvention services or aftercare is essential, and I don't think a lot of the, the 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 powers to be realized that it's very very important that especially when a person has attempted suicide even though they had failed it's not that they're okay that they're going to be okay and that they can be sent home and will be okay 
Postvention services and aftercare is very critical to the life and the life saving of people who are struggling. Um, and 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 you know when you when we talk about at risk or we talk about special needs, I, I look at things a little bit differently when we talk about that. And it comes back to the question that Sister Delilah had asked that I really didn't want to answer specifically because it's a broad question. When we talk about special needs, we think about people who are physically disabled, right? People who have some kind of like autism or some kind of other um, something across the spectrum. But when when we look at depression and suicide, we talk about special needs. We're talking about people who are emotionally disabled, that even their disability is physical. Those people, a lot of times, yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. and those people are 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 the ones who really need the aftercare, and so even being denied by insurance because either the provider that they're referred to does not take their insurance, or their insurance only covers a certain portion of their care for a certain period of time. Again, we're boxing people into this model that thinking like, okay, so you're struggling with depression, you've attempted to kill yourself, you have 48 hours or 48 days to overcome and to get back to some normal functionality of living. It doesn't work Mm -hmm. like that. And that's how Mm -hmm. the system is right now in saying we will provide you with services for only a certain period of time or coverage for a certain amount, and anything else after that, you're on your own. But what if that person really doesn't have the means of taking care of themselves? Then what are we saying to that person? We we really don't care about what you do after this point. Right. You know. So, mm-hmm. again, there's a lot that happens, and it comes back to the question that Sister Delilah had asked in the population or, or what comp- it's it's hard to answer a question like that because it's across the board. I mean, mm-hmm. we have people. Let me let me break this down for you. A lot of times we think that the people who are more distressed or depressed are people who are unemployed. We have a lot of people who are working in jobs, are making money, and they are struggling with depression. They're struggling with life. They're struggling with humane challenges. You have a lot of people who are, you know, in different cultures and ethnicities who their culture speaks against suicide as a sin, and so they are struggling with life challenges, depressed by their life challenges and don't want to talk about it because they don't want people to tell them their faith is weak. They've had a lot of people tell them that, you know, be strong in your faith, have faith. And you have a lot of clergy leaders who, when people come to them and, and open up about being depressed or suicidal, they're challenged by their faith. So there, there's a lot of things across the board when you look at the demographics of just how many people are hurting, the variations of the levels of hurt they're going through, the socioeconomic pieces of it and the cultural pieces of it. It's, it's huge. So mm-hmm. as a society, we have to come to an understanding that we can't put a lot of these labels or classifications on the human condition of what a person who is being dis- who is in distress, who is depressed or suicidal is going through because that exacerbates more of the distress that they're going through because now they feel ostracized. They feel right. judged. They feel prejudiced. They feel biased simply because they're just dealing with human conditions and there's no real help for it. Right. Well, what realistically, given given what our model is now and what the the collective psyche is about suicide and prevention uh, and to try to address aftercare, are people just primarily depending upon if, if it continues after the 45 days, uh, which it, I'm sure it does, are they telling them, we'll, we'll just call the suicide hotline and they'll they'll help you or whatever. What what would be the realistic next step to improve, say, the, the aftercare piece of it? The realistic next step for aftercare postvention services is to connect that person. So let's say the person goes into the emergency room or goes to a psychiatrist or sees that high level of care from either the health or the mental health side, is to connect that person now with a community-based resource in their community that's close to home where they have people trained in de-escalation of people with crisis and distress to work with that person. 
So even if their insurance, even if their insurance only covers them for 45 days, these nonprofit organizations or community-based organizations, many of them are funded with programs, and the funding will then be able to extend and expand on the services that are offered to that person for a longer period of time. So mm-hmm. that's another way that realistically we can deal with that because, you know, we can expect, and I'm, and I'm only being real, because in, in a perfect world, our healthcare system would really be about the health care of some people, but you do have some people who choose to be depressed. You do have some people who choose to live in the distress that they're in because that's what they, they, they know and how they're comfortable. So for the system to continue taking care of a person who makes that choice, to stay in this mode even after being provided with the quality services that would help them, but they don't take it or they're not, they're not using it, it's, to me, is unfair. It's not something that we will enable people to stay in the state that they're in. It's for us, as you said, just like the, the, the shelter system, right? It's a, it's, right. A, it's a process of just providing that help until you can get back on your temporary. feet and get back to, you know, it's right. a temporary process, yeah. Well, but let me also add this. Go ahead. I want to make sure I add this in, which is very important. On the, on the issue of medication and drugs, yeah, I am very cautious of that, and I, I I really want people to be very careful of whenever you're providing care or you're providing services to someone who is in emotional state or suicidal that the medication that's being provided to to you. You research on that. If you go to your therapist, your counselor, or you go to the emergency room and they provide you with any kind of medication, do your own research on that to see if there is possibly side effects that will will, will enhance your state, uh, your mental health state. I'll give that example because I had an incident about six weeks ago that I had to go to the emergency room. And while I was in the emergency room for a physical ailment, I was provided with medication that had possible side effects of depression, suicide ideation, and a lot of other side effects that, for me, would have been very very hurtful and damaging for me as a person who has struggled with suicide, who has struggled with depression, who has gone through a lot of those things. I just was very uncomfortable knowing that a, a prescription drug was being given to me that had possibly side effects of that. That's and the responsibility as, uh, of your physician to tell you that when they give you it, right? Well, they don't. Or they shouldn't have. Right? They should have. A, there, there should be an assessment of the mental health state of a person before given prescription that has mental health side effects. Okay, and I hear people tell me, Brett, it says possible side effects. But okay, I hear that. But what if the side effects actually do happen? And that person now is triggered into a, a, a state of depression that they've come out of or now attempting to to hurt themselves because of the side effects from the medication. And that's that's my point coming back to people who keep saying to me, Brett, you know, it says possible side effects. It doesn't mean that the person has to have the side effects. I understand that. But what if the person does have the side effects? Is Are the physician responsible, Brett, the one that prescribed it? I mean, you're experience in dealing with people, every single day we see commercials on TV with, you know, a laundry list of 30 negative side effects. Most all of them say possibility of, you know, suicide to to kind of let them off the hook, I guess, when they're doing these commercials. But, yeah, what if, I mean, can you go back to the physician of the practice and say, you did not tell me or adequately inform me that this was a possibility and, you know, this is part of my medical history. Well, I think it's a accountability on both sides. One is the, the the healthcare system needs to have an assessment in place for people who have come in for physical ailments to say that on the assessment, have you had any kind of mental health challenges around suicide or depression? If it's even mm-hmm. those two questions. One, if the person says, yes, I've struggled with depression or I have struggle with suicide ideation, then we have to look at the medication that's being prescribed to them to see if that medication has any possible side effects and let them know that there is a possible side effect. And on the other side, it is on us as people who are going in for care for us to be open with our doctors to say, okay, you're giving me this prescription, but I Mm -hmm. have struggled with depression or I'm a suicide attempt survivor or I'm having suicide ideations. Will this medication 
cause some kind of problem for me in that state that I'm in. So it's accountability on both sides. I'm not just putting it on the on the the you know the healthcare side. I'm also putting it on us as a people for us to stop being afraid to say that we're feeling the ways that we're feeling or that we're going through what we're going through. That's why this system is not just a system of, of care, but it's a system as a society that we have to normalize. We have to normalize, dehumanize, and, and, and not dehumanize, but just normalize the conversation for people to be able to say, I've struggled with depression, I'm depressed, I'm suicidal, I'm having suicide ideations, and not feel dehumanized just because they're saying that. Right. I I totally agree with you. There has to be accountability on both sides. Um, in the last five or six minutes that we do have, I'm posing this question. Maybe, Delilah, you can also address this as a, as a PR professional it, and also somebody that has some family experience with this topic. It seems to me, with all that Brett has been saying, and I know that we have to look at this from a humane standpoint and not from a medical psychiatric standpoint necessarily, we have a huge PR problem with this with this topic, and because of people's fear, how do we get to where Brett is talking about in terms of looking at this topic in a whole different light? How do we do that with the masses? What do you what do you what do you think, Delilah? And then what do you think, Brett? Well, I think Brett brought it out very well. Is that we have to create campaigns to change people's minds and to change people's minds you have to educate them so what he's doing within his organization i i applaud that because he he's doing the work he's boots on the ground doing the work he's meeting these people where they are and he's also Mm -hmm. i i know we haven't had time to really talk about everything that you do brett but i know you have support groups all over the place and these are the places where um you know people can get together with like-minded people and i think when that happens you have a different dynamic you you <laughs> learn about each other you learn about the issue and then others who come in learn how they can best serve these people and how they can you know support them in in what they're going through yeah. yeah, the support the support groups are huge because what happens is people feel, especially when you look at suicide and depression, people feel more comfortable when they're around people who have also gone through something similar. People want to know that I, I don't have to say that I'm suicidal or I tried to kill myself when people look at me like, what, are you crazy? What are you talking about? Fred, it's the same with homicide. It's the same with many different things in a support group model. You know, I've I've run many kinds of groups, people that have had, you know, people who have had strokes, and it's all of that. You go into a, a, a support group, and there's that. These people are in the same boat. There's a certain comfort level going in, and it's like, oh, my God, I feel an immediate sense of relief because they know I don't have to explain, right? Right, and, 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 and remember, you know, when we talk about suicide, I, I I don't compare suicide to any and I'm and this is me personally. I've uh, I've lost people to violence in a whole lot of different levels. Believe me, I've lost a lot of people to to death and and death is something I'm very familiar with. But when it comes to that suicide piece, I can't I can't compare suicide to anything else because this is not someone taking a life. This is someone taking their own life or giving up their own life. And it always a tear always comes to my eyes when I see um, that there was a life lost to suicide. Because the first thing that comes to my mind is what was that person going through and what levels of struggle did that person go through to have to make that decision to get to that point. And that's why I mm-hmm. said for us as a society, we have, to, we have to normalize the conversation about suicide because, to be honest with you, a lot of times people just feel like there's no one out there who really understands what they're going through or un- are even cares about what they're going through. And so they make these decisions out of just feeling a sense of being lost, you know, being right. just, I'm the only one who really knows what I'm going through and I don't want anyone to actually be, you know, have pity on me. And, and we need to change that. That's why mm-hmm. we have so many people reaching out to us because when they reach out to us, 
we humanize them. Mm-hmm. The first thing oh, we do is we humanize mm-hmm. them. We let them know it's okay for you to feel the way that you're feeling. It's okay for you to be feeling grief from losing a loved one or a broken heart or struggling because you can't put food on the table. It's okay for you to be feeling, but it's even more okay that you're reaching out for help and we're going to do the best that we can to help you by connecting you with resources locally where you are or even being a support for you virtually from as far as where we're at. And that makes right. all and the difference. That's what I was in the world. wondering. Are you able to um, to connect and uh, people if they are listening to this podcast and they're in a rural town or a small city or or even a large city? I mean, there may not be as many resources in in certain states and certain geographic locations. If they wanted to get in touch with your organization. Are you able to make a referral for them, particularly if they're in that aftercare um, designation and, and they're reaching out and they still need more help, Brett? Yes, we're able to do that. But one of the things that I would recommend to anyone who is in a rural community or a town or, or reach out to your health care provider and let your health care provider know that you are looking for mental health services for either depression or suicide, don't be afraid to say it. We find that a lot of people are afraid to say to their insurance companies because, again, they don't want or, or they don't know how someone will respond to that or their health care coverage will change or, or all of that. But we're saying to them, reach out to your health care provider because your health care provider is also a great resource to connect you with the appropriate resources that you need um, for the mental health services. So. If people are in need, we will be more than happy to lo- look for a local resource for them and that would advocate be great. for Can them. Can you give us your contact information? Our number is 917-651-1889. It's a 24-7 lifeline. You can call or text us on that number. Um, you can also email us at ask, like asking a question, ask at org. If you send us where you live, the zip code and the, and the town that you live in, we will reach out to the healthcare providers, the healthcare services organizations, and find out who provides the services that you want. And if you tell us which insurance you have, we will we will help you to take all of that away in terms of wow. the headache of just trying to get services. We've done that for a lot of people because we know That's how stressful wonderful. it can be to just be able to try to find services. That's that's very valuable for us to be the, a way to be closing out our show because, unfortunately, our hour is upon us, and I hate to have to wrap this up. Perhaps in the future we can do, you know, we can do a second show because, as I said, we just kind of uh, scrape the surface, if you will, and it is such an important topic. Brett, um, Delilah, and I applaud you for everything that you're doing, boots on the ground, because we need more people like you. And we need to get the word out. So, again, I thank you very much. We're going to have this podcast available on our archives forever. I encourage you and everyone else to circulate this. So we're going to have to uh, close out the hour for today. But thank you so much. And we want to mention, is this Suicide Prevention Week or is it an entire month devoted to this as well? Yes, it's the entire month, September Suicide Prevention Month. So the whole month, um, you know, it's about focusing a lot more on the topic. And we just need people to just be a part of the conversation, just get people to know that it's Suicide Prevention Month and just use say the word suicide. Don't be afraid to talk about it. Let's, you know, let's normalize it. Let people know that, hey, it's okay for you to say, I'm feeling suicidal, I'm thinking of killing myself because I feel lonely or feel depressed or, you know, my heart is broken. Say it because, mm-hmm. you know, we want people to know that we, we care. There are people out there who really care about you and will help you to get there help that you need. Right. Well, well, that's very, very good. So so thank you once again, and let, let's, let's keep in contact. Let's keep in touch. And for now, we will close out this edition for, of Shattered Lights Radio. Thank you very much, Delilah, and we'll see you next Saturday.
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.